the show starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, go. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I am Jay Love, and I represent the, um, the Justice for Gerard movement. And thank you for joining us on Turning a Moment into a Movement, where we come every week to talk about wrongful convictions. Um, a little bit about my journey is I was, we created this platform because our journey with Gerard, who was wrongfully um, convicted of a crime he didn't do, and he served. Um, while being innocent, two years in the Michigan Department of Corrections for that crime. And uh, he just recently passed away. And so we still come here to talk about the wrongfully convicted, try to, uh, our goal is to educate and to motivate. Also, the medically frail and the over-sentenced. That is our, our platform. That's why we're here. And so thank you for joining us. And so today we have our special guest that's coming on to um, talk about reversing criminal convictions, attorney Elizabeth Franklin Best. We're so excited to have us, her join us today. And so we're going to get on with, the, um, with our event. So I'm going to bring on the panel and let them introduce themselves first. And then we're going to bring attorney um, Elizabeth Franklin, Franklin Best on. So... Let's go. Greetings. Greetings, everybody. What's up, sis? How you doing? I'm great. How about you? I'm blessed in spite of the mess. <laughs> exactly. Blessed in spite of the mess. Man. It's been a long week. Yeah, it's um, it's been a very, very long, trying week. Um, very devastating. Uh, so many different emotions, you know, um, but, you know, I always have to come from a place of hope because that's what keeps me going. Yeah. If I don't have hope, I don't have anything to hold on to. So the hope is in knowing that we can all come together and continue to work and build so that we can transform and dismantle and disrupt these systems that continue to come against our people. Yes. Well, thank you. Tell them, um, everybody what it is that you do, Trisha. All right. I am the executive director and the founder of Survivor Speak. And I'm the lead consultant at Value Black Lives, um, where we uplift um, the message along with the works because faith without works is dead, right? So you can't just talk about it. You can't just pray about it. You got to be about it. Um, and so we are continuing to build alongside many community members who understand and know that racial equity is non-negotiable. Reparations is non-negotiable. Um, and we will continue to build because all of these things, when even when you think about racial equity, it, it includes talking about the criminal justice system. No, yeah. excuse, the criminal injustice system that was created to do exactly what it is doing. However, we will continue to push back and to interrupt business as usual because we understand that the people really have the power. We just got to use it. Exactly. 
Thank you, Trisha. Thank you. Love you, Jay. I love you too. Greetings, Allie. Hello. Hello to y'all. How are you? Doing good. Doing good. Glad the weekend is here. Yes. Introduce yourself and tell everybody what it is that you do. Yes. Uh, my name is Alexandria Hughes. I am a community organizer, activist. I work for Michigan Liberation, also one of the founding members of Accountability for Dearborn. Uh, and uh, let's see, let me not go through all of my hats. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the issues I focus on is criminalization of those uh, with mental health disabilities and needs and um, bringing awareness to our uh, Michigan Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court in general. And uh, also involved in this work because of how it impacts me, how the legal system has impacted my family members, the trauma that it has caused them, caused me as well at times. And, uh, you know, this system and, and the structures and policies in place in this world has a tendency to make it where humanity is selective. Mm -hmm. And uh, it shouldn't be. And uh, firm believer, I'm an echo triche about hope, firm believer in hope. And uh, I look at hope as a discipline. Uh, and that discipline uh, means that you take action towards it. Uh, yeah. towards making that change in the community. Yes. Well, thank you, Allie. Uh, so sitting in this week for Reverend Tia is our favorite attorney, <laughs> attorney Doreen Payne. Hi, attorney Payne. Oh, hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> How uh, are you today? I am probably like all the rest of you. Um, uh, it's been a a, a emotionally draining couple of weeks, uh, especially these last couple of weeks. It's <laughs> the, the warring and the, and the struggle is real. Mm -hmm. uh, it is um, uh, tough to, to negotiate through so many times, but, um, but uh, like all of you, we, what we do uh, and the goals that we seek, justice and fairness and humanity for everyone is not negotiable. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we, don't, um, we don't stop our work until we're called home. Um, uh, until then we have to keep going and uh, keep fighting and keep praying. Uh, you're right, faith without works is dead. Uh, and so we uh, we move on. I, I'm a practicing attorney uh, here in the state of Michigan. Um, but as uh, indicated by Jay Love, our love, um, uh, I'm representing Reverend Tia today. So I, I have to speak <laughs> some words <laughs> and I have to watch my mouth. And <laughs> And speak as to you, uh, but it's good to be here. It's good to see you all, and I'm looking forward to being uh, in the company of this uh, phenomenal uh, yeah. attorney and fellow warrior. Yes, an ally. Yes. So thank you. I know Reverend Tia left us in good company. She's doing a wedding today. So yes. yeah. hello, Reverend Tia. I know she's peeking. <laughs> okay, and so last but certainly not least, Attorney Mac. Hello. <laughs> Hello. 
See, you know, you know, Jay Love. I got you. I think you, I think you saved me for last for a reason. See, <laughs> no, no, I, I'm seeing a definite pattern here. <laughs> you know, because you know, you know, some people say I'm crazy, Jay Love, and I always have to apologize every time I get on and ask you, please don't kick me off the show. I know you get letters and calls and all that. Please don't, please don't. <laughs> so, but you know, for me. It's a joy to be here, and you know, I've I've had a, a really difficult week. Okay, um, yeah. Being a black man, being a father of young black men, and being the grandfather of younger still black men, it it's been a hard week for me. You know, because the truth of the matter is, that could have been me. Mm-hmm. It. It could have been me. And being a member of the state bar of Michigan means nothing. Okay. You know, being a homeowner taxpayer means nothing. Being a registered voter means nothing. Absolutely nothing. So, you know, um, I've shed a few tears over that because I've gotten to the point I can't watch that video anymore. Okay. I, I'm, I'm saturated. I, I can't watch that video anymore. So, you know, this weekend, I hope to have a talk with my nephews um, about the realities of it, you know, and, and, and really, you know, what's so disheartening and, and it's so sad that we have to, excuse me, overcome injustice despite people in our own camp, despite mm-hmm. in our own camp, you know, and I, I just, it, it just goes to show what all of y'all have said, and I love y'all all y'all got a space in my heart it is a system it's not about color it is a system it's a system that we fight against yeah. and if this doesn't prove to every person who's out there fighting and pitching for black people as a group which in an abstract sense is okay an abstract sense but i'm not fighting and pitching for those police officers i'm not fighting and pitching for clarence thomas i'm i'm not doing that i'm not doing that because they are the they're antithetical to everything I stand for. You understand? Mm-hmm. So you know, you know, I will I will fight for the justice of a black man, a white man, a, a yellow man, a red man on principle. You know, but of course, my interest primarily is in black folks because nobody has been done wrong like us. You know, with possibly the exception of the of the, of the Native Americans, possibly, but they would rather die than be slaves. They chose death over slavery. Okay, mm-hmm. you know, so. And a lot of us did too. So about myself, uh, former chief assistant public defender, former candidate for Washington County prosecuting attorney, practicing now in the Ann Arbor, Ypsilanti, metropolitan world area, uh, expanding my practice to Russia, Scotland, Harlem, <laughs> as I am the true yet unannounced king of those areas. So, so here we go, Jay Love. Here we go. Here we go. So, so, I got you. So, so but you know. Going, going to fight for what is right, you know, for what is right. Uh, a person that knows what it's like to come back from a penitentiary. Um, I'm one of those attorneys that did not parachute from heaven to be in the ranks, but brought up from hell through the blood of God and Jesus Christ. I understand yeah. what it's like to pay a debt that you do not owe. I understand that quite well. So my fight is for the wrongfully convicted and the overly convicted the people that suffer from mental illness and challenges that are falling through through the cracks. And the next time somebody tells you elections don't have consequences, 
remember when a buffoon, a buffoon by the name of John Engler got, got elected because Blanchard and, and Coleman Young got into a, well, it's a mixed family show. So got into a contest uh, and, and, and the people in Detroit did not turn out because uh, Coleman Young did not, did not push them to turn out. And we got Engler who shut down clinics, by the way, like Lafayette Clinic in Detroit, all that got shut down. Therefore, the only passageway was from the streets for the mentally ill to the jail and the penitentiary. There, mm -hmm. there was no middle, there was no safeguard for those folks. And, you know, we've been dealing with uh, systemic problems uh, from then and, and before. So um, I, my spirit just isn't into my normal announcement like I would normally give. So <laughs> I'll be back to myself next week. But let me just say this. Whenever you want Trouble Boulevard, and you see the police behind you, not just the police, but the police behind you. <laughs> Push, pull, drag, tow your car to Mac Street. Mac Street. Park in my virtual underground parking lot. And when you get there, call the Freedom Line. 734-239-3118. The Freedom Line. 734-239-3118. HMACLaw.com is your hookup. HMACLaw.com is your hookup. HMACLaw.com is your hookup. And doggone straight, I endorse this advertisement. And I love you. <laughs> we love you too, Attorney Matt. Thank you. Say that Matt. number for me one more time. I was trying to write it down. Say that number for me one more time. Yes, the Freedom Line. 734 <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm actually sending somebody your way because I told them that I know you are just the person to stand for justice on behalf of these kids. So I will be sending your number out. Well, well, look, God bless you, sister. And, and, and I will certainly do the same. Believe me, God bless you. And I appreciate you. And I love you. Thank you. Thank you, attorney Mac. So <laughs> now <laughs> welcome Attorney Elizabeth Franklin Bass. I wish I had some uh, <laughs> some applause. <laughs> Thank you. It's for just so us. nice to meet all of you. I mean, what a great group of people to talk about these issues. And um, you know, I'm kind of new to this Facebook sort of space, or um, you know, really just sort of all of this, but. This is a really great sort of slick production you got. It looks oh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Happy to be here. <laughs> so um, introduce yourself and tell us and everyone who's viewing or may view later what it is that you do. Yeah, so, you know, I'm a criminal defense lawyer in Columbia, South Carolina. We practice... Um, you know, once somebody's convicted, then that's when we get involved. So we do most, all of our work really is in direct appeals. Um, we do some federal post-conviction work. We handle um, federal habeas cases for state inmates who are convicted. We've started doing a lot of compassionate release petition work for federal guys who are convicted. And, um, you know, anything that's just kind of in that space once somebody has been convicted of a crime. And so, you know, because we're in that space and a lot of people are, you know, sort of in that front end doing the, the trial work, we tend to get a lot of the guys who, you know, 
to claim their innocence. They're out of their legal remedies. They're trying to get back into court. And so we try, we just have sort of a special place in our hearts for the, the innocent guys um, who need help. And so we've, you know, we're, we're kind of in that space as well, <laughs> just sort of doing the best we can. But that's that's what we do. I mean, my background, I started off as a public defender, was an appellate public defender for another five years. I got really heavy into like South Carolina death penalty work, did that for about seven years. Um, and then three years ago, I started my own firm. Kind of the idea was that we would take a lot of the principles um, a lot that we were employing in um, capital work to bring it to bear for, you know, just sort of our regular guys who were incarcerated. And so, you know, we've got a firm, we're now three lawyers, two paralegals, and we just, you know, are trying to do good work. Um, good work for, you know, people who are deserving of it. So that's, that's my background. So do you, um, you've been doing this work for a while with these wrongful convictions and we've been seeing it like it's um, a lot of exonerations um, within the last few years. What is your take on all of this, uh, especially with all these innocent um, clinics and CIUs that's, that's coming, popping up all over the United States because there's so many innocent people are in prison? I mean, that's exactly right. You know, and I was talking to somebody earlier about this and, you know, she wanted, she just asked me, she's like, you know, how many wrongful convictions do you think there are in America? And, you know, it's just, it's an impossible question to answer, right? I mean, we've only had DNA in the courtrooms since the early nineties. You know, I think um, Kurt Bloodworth was like the first case where DNA, you know, really sort of got admitted in a courtroom. And I think that was in 1986. So, you know, but in that time, right, I mean, in the time from the early 90s until now, we've seen so many DNA exonerations. And we know that most cases don't involve DNA, right? Right. I mean, there's <laughs> DNA is still like sort of a small portion of these cases. So if you just sort of extrapolate to that, right, I mean, the numbers start getting pretty disturbingly large. Um but, you know, sort of in addition to the wrongful conviction piece and, and something that I picked up that y'all were talking about, which makes me happy because I don't think nearly enough people do, is that sort of wrongful sentencing piece. You know, there are people who are doing just incredibly long sentences in the Departments of Correction, the Bureau of Prisons. And I mean, that's like a whole nother level of serious concern that, you know, we as a, as a community just need to start addressing. Mm -hmm. um, trying to do it here in South Carolina. And, you know, maybe I know that there are a couple of lawyers here with me. So maybe you can sort of tell me how it is in Michigan. But when I look at our case law, well, let me sort of back up. I mean, we all know that most cases are resolving by way of guilty pleas. You know, back in 2019, yeah. it was roughly, you know, 98.5%. In South Carolina, it's probably like 96%. So everything is resolving just about by way of guilty pleas. But the law that's on the books in South Carolina, like when you look at the law that sort of says, you know, whether or not you've got sort of an appropriate sentence or whatever, our law is going back to like 1970s. 
you know, it's going back to this time before we ran into mass incarceration. The law is sort of back to the time where most cases were still getting resolved by way of trials. And so the case law says something like this, you know, so long as the sentence is within the statutory, you know, range, then we're not going to find an abuse of discretion and we're going to uphold that sentence. And it's very rare that you'll see like a sentence reverse at the appellate level. So what that's created in my mind is kind of a constitution free zone when it comes to sentencing criminal defendants in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're so incredibly deferential to what's happening in the courtrooms that we're not, that the courts are just not even looking at it. And so I've got a case, for example, of this kid, all right? And I mean, kid, he was 19 years old. And he and some of his buddies like go into this house. They believe, I mean, they have reason to believe it's abandoned. Okay. I mean, it's sort of a question of fact, whether or not, you know, they actually had reason to believe that somebody was living there or not. But they go in there, kid picks up a gun once he's inside. So now all of a sudden you're in a home with a gun and he's charged with, burglary first degree. And in South Carolina, that carries from 15 to life. So you got this 19 year old kid. Those are the facts of the case. Nobody's in the house. Okay. Nobody's there. No one gets hurt. And he gets 20 years in prison. And it just doesn't make sense. Right. Mm -hmm. So what I've just been talking to you about, you know, about how the law has not caught up with you know what we've seen in terms of mass incarceration and police and all the rest of it i mean this is something i'm trying to raise right it's like courts you've got to get involved with sentencing again because what's happening is just kind of crazy you know judges don't even have to kind of put on the record like why they're doing the sentencing that they are and in south carolina we don't have any guidelines you know we don't have any sort of institutional guidelines so you know it means nothing to some of these judges to say to this 19 year old kid, I'm going to give you a sentence longer than the life that you've been on the planet earth to walk into an abandoned house and pick up a gun. So, you know, that's just sort of an issue that I, I get wrongful convictions. It's a real problem, but we've got so many of cases like what I've just described. And, you know, you've got a, a 19 year old kid who's going to do the next 20 years prison. I mean, he's being taken away from his family. He's being taken away from his job. He's being taken away from his education. You know, it, it leaves a scar. It leaves mm -hmm. a scar in that community. And I mean, we just need to start addressing, you know, those sorts of issues as well. Yeah. Attorney Matt, go ahead. Attorney Matt. Uh, good to hear you and see you, Counselor. Yes, nice good, good to hear and see you, counsel. Um, I, I, I've got some questions. <clears throat> the legislature in South Carolina, the Senate and the House are controlled by Republicans? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. Okay, and, yes. and I'm, I'm sorry. And, and the, governor, the governor is a Republican too? Yes. Is that, that is yes? Okay. Yes. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't Nikki Haley the governor of South Carolina at one time? She was, yes. Okay, okay. So I take it you've got somebody like her or worse as governor right now. 
My, uh, yes. Yes. Okay. We have Henry McMaster as is, is governor. Yes. Okay. Um, my question is, has anybody proposed anything in terms of sentencing reform in South Carolina? Um, I don't know if they've got the equivalent of good time, disciplinary credits. Uh, can, can you give us some background on that? Yeah, so we've got a very powerful state senator from kind of like the Orangeburg, South Carolina area, uh, Gerald Malloy. And Gerald Malloy has been a fixture of South Carolina politics for a very long time. And he is very much kind of in this space. And back in 2010, <clears throat> he was instrumental in getting past, um, you know, pretty good sentencing reform for South Carolina. I mean, it wasn't as far as many of us would have liked it to go, but there were actually some really nice changes in like the mandatory minimums for some of the drug offenses, parole eligibility and all the rest of that. So he's actually got another piece of legislation um, that, is, that is sort of circulating right now. I mean, frankly, there's not a lot of oxygen in the room right now because we've had to deal with the abortion issue, We've got, um, we had um, some execution litigation going on since our legislature decided to pass a, a firing squad <laughs> law. Um, so there are a lot of things that are kind of going on and it's taking the oxygen out of the room. So we're not getting a whole lot of criminal justice reform right now, but there are a lot of really good ideas there that are being kind of promulgated. We're talking about um, revising parole eligibility for juveniles. Um, I know that there is a piece of it about um, sort of sentence reduction motions um, and things of that nature. But I mean, you know, it, it takes a long time in South Carolina for something even remotely progressive to pass. And it really takes a person like Gerald Malloy who has got the connections and can sort of bring people to the table to make it pass, but you know, um, at least we've got him <laughs> and hopefully maybe in the next session or two, we'll, we'll get some sort of relief. Um, Go ahead, Allie. Yeah. Um, just taking in everything you were saying. Um, just thinking about you mentioning the laws on the books dating back to the seventies, 1970. Uh, and earlier, and I, was, I mean, earlier, you know, the, a lot of the sentencing case law is just really old. And I bet that's true in Michigan as well. Yeah. Yeah. It, it made me think of how I started thinking of like black code laws mm -hmm. from 1865 up until 1966. And I, when you said 1970, I, I realized that really tracks in terms of continuing uh, <laughs> the problem. And, um, you were also saying, talking about long sentences. And yeah, in Michigan, we have some of the longest sentences uh, that people get. And you know, I was curious as to, um, so for South Carolina, is it is it like a truth to sentencing law? And then is there, for the minors, is that apply to them? Because I know Michigan Supreme Court recently changed some things with cruel and unusual punishment pertaining to minors or something like that. <clears throat> yeah. So, so truth and sentencing, I, what I take that is sort of no parole and your sentence kind of is what it is. 
So let's just say you're convicted of armed robbery in South Carolina. You get a 20 year sentence. You'll serve 85 and then you'll get out. You know, so we don't really have parole anymore. So that's kind of true for um, the violent crimes. You know, if it's kind of like a minor drug charge or something like that, you'll probably serve 25 to 50 percent of your sentence and then you'll you'll get out. Um, the juvenile issue is, is really very interesting, right? I mean, so United States Supreme Court came down and said that life without the possibility of parole sentences are presumptively unconstitutional, you know, for, for juveniles having committed homicides. And so in South Carolina, we also um, came out with kind of our state analog to that, which is Aiken v. Byers. And so I was one of the lawyers who was kind of on the front end of that. And I worked with a team of other lawyers. We identified like 42 guys in the South Carolina Department of Corrections who were juveniles at the time that they received their life sentences. Um, and so our Supreme Court agreed to allow them to have resentencings. And so for a handful of these guys, it really sort of worked out because they were able to negotiate these sentences for one, one, one woman in particular, you know, ended up getting what amounted to like sort of credit for time served and she was released for a number of the other ones, you know, they had their resentencing hearings, but then they all, they received life sentences again. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of percolating. I mean, those are, those are being, um, you know, sort of appealed right now, but there has been, you know, some change about the way that juveniles are being handled. So if you are now a juvenile and you were facing say like a murder charge, or a burglary first charge, or something that carries the possibility of a life sentence, then you're entitled to a lot of the procedural protections that capital defendants get. So you're entitled to additional funding so that you can you know, put together like a mitigation project. You can have a, a hearing where people are testifying on your behalf so that you can offer this mitigation to show why you're not incorrigible. Right. I mean, that's the language incorrigible to show why you should or why you're deserving of a sentence, something less than life. And so that's been an improvement. Right. Um, and I think we changed the age at which somebody is considered a juvenile. So, I mean, that's one of the more positive developments, I think, that we've had in a long time. Now, it was Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court that really kind of drove that train. And so, of course, when he retired and we got Brett Kavanaugh um, and, you know, the way it's developed since then, you know, I don't expect that we'll see a whole lot of progressive kind of juvenile cases coming in the future. I mean, I think I think we've got what we're going to get um, and it's going to be up to sort of state legislatures to um you know, to provide some additional protections for that that class of inmates or defendants, I should say. So when uh, you mentioned in the Supreme Court, they just, what, last year, what, June, May, May, I think, they passed, uh, uh, they made a ruling that innocence is not enough in regarding to uh, yeah. wrongful convictions. Does that make yeah. it harder fighting those convictions? Yeah, yeah. So the, the case you're talking about is Shin v. Ramirez. And just kind of back up and talk a little bit about what that was, because, you know, back in 
2012, um, the Supreme Court came down with this case called Martinez v. Ryan. And Martinez v. Ryan was like this really great sort of door opener. And what it said was, you know, in federal habeas cases, and so both of these cases are like what happens in federal habeas. And it said, there's this longstanding rule that the only claims you can raise in federal habeas are claims that you raise to either your um, state Supreme Court or, you know, you've otherwise exhausted it. Okay. So you've got to have presented that claim in state court before you could walk into federal court. So when Martinez v. Ryan came down, it sort of changed that. It's like, look, if you had ineffective assistance of counsel for your trial, we're going to let you add additional claims in federal court if you can show that the reason why you didn't raise it to the state court is because you received ineffective assistance of counsel at either what's called like the post-conviction level or state habeas level. So sort of two layers there, right? I mean, you can show ineffective assistance of trial counsel if you also had ineffective assistance of counsel when you should have been able to raise that ineffective assistance of trial counsel claim. So that's a mouthful, but it was a good thing because now all of a sudden we're conducting investigations again. We're trying to show that, you know, PCR counsel was ineffective and we were allowed to engage in this additional sort of factual development in federal habeas, you know, so we were out of state court and we went into federal court with these claims. And this is when I was working on the death penalty cases. And so we were able to stay a lot of these capital cases back in 2012 while we were litigating all this. So we're all feeling pretty good about this, right? I mean, we're we were able to really kind of find some new stuff here to try to get our guys relief. Well, so then Shin V. Ramirez came down. And the long and short of it is that it has made it impossible to do that additional factual development. What it has said is that, look, in federal habeas cases, you can only look at the existing state court record. So all this investigation you've been doing, you know, to try to prove that somebody's innocent or somebody's wrongfully convicted, we're not going to look at it. And that's why it sort of shut the door to innocence, right? Because I think it was, you know, I mean, it was one of the defendants in that case. I know there were two different um, defendants who were, um, you know, the two cases that were consolidated. But for one of those inmates, you know, he had had a hearing in federal court where the federal judge decided that there was enough evidence there that it was reasonable to believe that he was factually innocent of the murders that he had been convicted of having committed and that he didn't belong on death row. I mean, this was a death row inmate. And so when Shin V. Ramirez came down and said, no, 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 you, you shouldn't have had that hearing. The court should not have even, you know, heard that evidence of his innocence. So because the court shouldn't have done that, back to death row you go. And that to me is the most extraordinary, you know, I, I it was horrifying. Um, I mean, to think that you would actually 
completely disregard evidence of innocence, to shut the door, you know, to inmates, and you're going to send this guy back to death row. I mean, it, it is a cold, cold ruling. And, um, you know, that was sort of the moment when I was like, who are these people? Right. Um, and then when, of course, <clears throat> the Dobbs decision comes down and all the rest of it, I mean, these are just people who are not at all sort of concerned about the real life, the real world consequences of these legal rulings. I mean, it's all sort of ideology um, and is not driven by any sort of sense of compassion or, or humanity, frankly. Right. And I mean, it is a hard pill to swallow because, you know, I've been doing criminal law and appellate law for the last 20 years. And I mean, Jesus Christ, I mean, I've just never seen anything like it. All right. Go ahead, Trisha. I mean, um, I'm really speechless. Um, when I think about that and when you, I think you shared that Jay, like you said, a few months ago, and I think about the setback that that causes because you, you're looking at misidentification. You're looking at prosecutorial misconduct. You're looking at so many different things that could flip a case. But now we're not even eligible. You know, it, it's, it's, it's well, just. Well, but I'll tell you, so, so, you know, this just makes it that much more important to know how to fight the cases in state court and to know how to fight the cases and what you need to do at every step of the, you know, every step of the way. I mean, this is, you know, I, I've got this book that I'm still finishing my edits and I'm getting out. And I mean, what I try to sort of outline is, I mean, how you can get the relief in state court, because that's where the action is going to happen. If you are wrongfully convicted, you are going to have to get your relief in state court and you need to know how to do it. You need to know what the courts are looking for so that you can create the record that you need to, to get the relief. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I took a, a look earlier at Gerard's appeal and I read his opinion and I can tell you, I mean, I, I could, I could see what happened. I could see he had a lawyer who, did not conduct investigation in this case. And I see that after he was convicted, there should have been some kind of a motion for an evidentiary hearing so that he could raise ineffective assistance of counsel claims for some reason that didn't get filed. And so somebody raised those claims on a direct appeal and the court said, we can't reach the merits of these claims because we don't have in the record factual information that we need to rule in the way that you're asking us to. It was a total breakdown of that process of putting a record together and presenting it to the court so that the court can do what you're asking it to do. And so that's, that's exactly the kind of issue that I am trying to kind of help. Because people don't know, right? I mean, everyone has grown up watching Law and Order. They watch 
court TV. They know what a trial is, right? Once somebody's convicted, like nobody knows what is going, they don't understand the landscape and the landscape's a little bit different everywhere. And so, but there's, but there's information, you know, you got to educate people so that they can start to self-advocate, right? Mm -hmm. Because our public defender system, criminal justice system is not looking out for you. You got to self-advocate and you need to have the knowledge in order to know how to do that. And so that's kind of what I'm trying to sort of help with, um, you know, factual development. The most important thing that you need to be concerned about if you are convicted, if you're wrongfully convicted, is how to develop the facts that you need and get it into the record and the record that's going to go up to the courts. All right. And, you know, no one's watching like these like sexy TV dramas about appellate lawyers. Right. I mean, because we're just sort of like sitting at a keyboard. Um, it's just not a whole lot of fun to watch. Um, so but as a result of that. Right. I mean, people just don't have the knowledge. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's wonky. Right. I mean, it's all sort of nerdy and kind of complicated language and it's weird rules. And I mean, a lot of it is sort of designed to keep people out of court. Um, so people just it's need kind to of designed for, it seems like it's kind of designed for people to take a plea. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly right. It's not designed exactly for a trial. No, no, no. no. So, I mean, in fact, if, if, if 5% more, criminal defendants decided to take their cases to trial instead of pleading guilty, the system would grind to a halt. It would not be able to function. And so when you think about, you know, the right to a trial is a fundamental constitutional right. And if you are in a system where you cannot exercise your fundamental constitutional rights because the system would break down completely if you did, then you are not in a healthy, fair system. Yeah. I, I, you know, this is real. Now you're talking <laughs> my language and, and talking about what I believe is so very important. What happens at the trial level? And uh, like you, I've been uh, an indigent defense attorney uh, for mm -hmm. since the beginning. I, I That was my calling. That's where I, God sent me here. Um, and so I, um, uh, I've learned over the years how important trials are. Um, now, normally people get, the people who get the best representation in trials are the people who can afford the best attorneys and are paying an awful lot for them. So it always gives gave me a great deal of satisfaction and joy to represent my clients as an indigent defense attorney as mm -hmm. if they were paying me five hundred dollars an hour. So that's exactly. Uh, uh, I've carried that forward, and I am now because of our Michigan indigent defense the changes in uh, the laws and requirements of indigent defense attorneys, we've revamped our, our indigent defense approach and we are now governed by a commission called the Michigan Indigent Defense Commission. Um, mm -hmm. Here in our county, 
uh, we set forth to really address how we represent indigent defendants. We have here, uh, we took the funding that we got from Michigan, from MIDC, used it uh, and, and a number of grants, and we set up a firm. And I'm talking, it rivals anything anywhere in Kalamazoo or probably in the state. It's a firm. We look like a firm and we not only serve, we have a, we have a, we have the number of attorneys we need. Uh, We have legal assistance. We have, but not only that, but we have what we call a village. And in our village is housed uh, mental health, uh, social workers, and all of those individuals that we can, and client navigators and people who go sit with people in court because they're so, African-Americans are so, um, uh, (laughs) people are uncomfortable in court. And we have client navigators that will help them in in those spaces. Um, We've taught our attorneys that, we don't want to plead and that prosecutors have gotten off too uh, easily all of these years by setting that system up. Mm-hmm. And so we fight, you know, we, we go to trial and we win because we know that all of these years prosecutors have been overcharging and then mm-hmm. Allowing, uh, and then we take a charge because our clients are too afraid to take a chance in court because attorneys are usually saying, well, now, you know, if you go to trial and you lose, this is what's going to happen. And we say, we think we can win this because they overcharge you, you know? And so many times we can get a lot of those charges reduced in, at the prelim and before we can get to circuit court. A lot of times mm-hmm. our charges just thrown out. We keep mm-hmm. data and we keep data. We have uh, uh, technology technology people uh, that keep our data by race and and uh, and we know who they're charging, how how the, the disparate impact on African Americans versus white mm-hmm. people that are charged for the same things. We know uh, how often now they use RNO, and we have data to show that they that they overcharge RNO all the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we've had a number of uh, appellate cases reversed uh, and returned back because, and and we prevailed not only in a trial court but in appellate court because you're absolutely right. But you can't get to appellate court successfully without a fight, you know? And so I, so the prosecutor in our county is, com, is complaining because his people are overworked. Because yeah, now they have to work. They have to, <laughs> they have to show don't up. Don't bring the charges. Yeah. You know, yeah. don't bring the cases. It's right. simple. <laughs> they have to show up, but we. But one of the one of the biggest issues we have is making sure, ensuring that we're that we're fighting the case, and making sure that we're making the appropriate record. 
that's right. Sometimes that's hard because we still are overworked. Our attorneys are still overworked. They don't give you enough money to, <laughs> to, to reduce your caseload to the point where um, you're not, you're like, you're like a, an attorney that, that's getting $500 an hour, but, um, but, but we still have to fight uh, for um, the clients. Uh, and uh, it's tough. It's still tough. Uh, but, but um, I'm, I'm wondering how you see um, uh, you know, the, the, one of the biggest conversations that's going on right now is uh, CRT. Now, it's been misappropriated. You know, CRT has nothing to do with what they teach elementary school children. Uh, yeah, but, right. but in fact, I learned I was a critical race theorist or a race crit in law school, of course, <laughs> you know, because that's where you, you start looking at the law through a certain lens. There are feminist uh, uh, critical thinkers that look through the, look at the law through that, that critical lens. But um, what have you seen relative to race uh, critical, uh, race crit and uh, that theory as you've worked across the circuits? Have you seen it more prevalent, the issues around race crit more prevalent in certain circuits than others, or do you see it pretty much across the board? Well, I mean, so, you know, I, I can talk about what sort of racial things I've seen here, you know, whether it's called CRT or not, I don't really know. Um, it's nothing I've, you know, studied, although I've, you know, study philosophy and probably, you know, have encountered it at some point. I mean, I can tell you that in South Carolina, I mean, we have a very racially sort of divided state um, when it comes to just how our criminal justice system works. I remember, because um, I practiced in New York for a little bit before I moved back to South Carolina, and when I started off as a public defender in South Carolina, I would walk into the courtroom and, you know, it would be plea day, right? I mean, this is when all the guys would kind of come in, they'd sit in the box and they would one by one kind of take their pleas. And they were always African-American boys, you know, young men. And I would go to the detention center. And I mean, if you saw a white kid in there, it was like, you know, who's that? <laughs> and I mentioned that to somebody once and I was like, what, what is this? And, you know, he said, I mean, you're right. It, it looks like a slave ship disembarking. I mean, and that was the phrase that he used and that has always kind of stuck with me because this was before I started reading, you know, Michelle Alexander and, um, reading about the, sort of the new Jim Crow and all the rest of it, but it was, it was something that had struck me from the very beginning. And, you know, I've, I've talked to other lawyers about, you know, why aren't we collecting, um, you know, sort of facts about how our sentencing is, is, is happening? You know, I mean, what, what is the difference between, 
young black men and young white men when it comes to, say, a conviction for armed robbery or possession of a stolen vehicle. Because we know that the more discretion that actors in the criminal justice system have, the more we see those racially disparate impacts. And in a place like South Carolina, where there is almost unfettered discretion on the part of the prosecution, unfettered discretion on the part of the sentencing judges, you know, you would expect to see race effects there. But we don't track the information. I mean, I can tell you sort of anecdotally what I think we would find, but we don't track the information. I don't know anyone who does. I mean, well, I know the federal government does, and I think they do a pretty good job of it. But even tracking it, right? I mean, the numbers aren't good. I mean, I looked, um, I'm sort of especially interested in this possession of a firearm by a convicted felony charge. I mean, so this is something that, you know, is charged all the time. And it's a way of getting an easy extra five years for a federal defendant. And so I looked at the numbers for, again, I think it was maybe a couple of years ago, and of the felon in possession of a firearm charges, like 56% of them were African-American men. And you cannot tell me that <laughs> 56% African-American men versus, you know, the, the whatever number of Caucasians. I mean, it, that just struck me as clearly being sort of overrepresented. Um, I- and that's where we're at. And, you know, it's, we're sort of at this point where it's almost impossible to have these discussions. I mean, I, you know, who, who's talking about this stuff right. now? I know that, um, and this sort of relates to the federal system, but, you know, the federal sentencing commission had largely been vacant. They didn't have people sort of there, but recently they've gotten, um, judge Carlton Reeves from Mississippi, who is really, a very progressive, great, wonderful human being. Um, And so he is now on that commission. So I'll be sort of curious to see whether or not we're going to see some changes on the federal level with um, maybe some of these disparate racial impacts. But, you know, most people in America who are getting involved in our criminal justice system is happening at the state level. And, you know, if you want to, if you want change in this country, it's got to happen at that state level. And I mean, God knows it is not easy to do. You know, I will say in Michigan, you got some good people sort of in place now, <laughs> you know, at, at, at the right levels. But and that's, I think that's, that's right. I, I did have a question about that state level. Um, it, uh, as we're talking about these laws and, and how far back they go, I was thinking about the 1931 uh, uh, reproductive uh, rights or abortion uh, law where it would be um, a felony. Uh, under that 1931 law and how, you know, with reproductive rights uh, for all being put on the ballot, how that law is not going to impact us anymore because of that. Now being in the Constitution that anyone can get um, an abortion and access to contraceptives and other things. Um, So hopefully that sticks. But uh, I bring that up because a lot of prosecutors in Michigan, Washtenaw, Oakland County, Think even Wayne, I want to say, <laughs> uh, prosecutor, were speaking out about like this this law is wrong. They were doing advocacy, saying we're not prosecuting anybody uh, for this, you know. And I've never mm-hmm. seen that 
was, it was something I would do as an organizer and not something they do. So it got me thinking, I wonder like, what would it like, what would it take for there to be a full like independent review of all of these laws? Because I think North Carolina, I think about the disturbing schools law where mm -hmm. uh, it's a crime to disturb any uh, school or university or K through 12 minors and adults um, that they can get charged with that. And it's very vague. So um, yeah, I, I just yeah, curious. We, we, we actually, we, we had that and um, got it declared unconstitutional in South Carolina, the disturbing schools. That was my second question. <laughs> yeah, no, we had that. <laughs> That's good. You know, so I don't know, you know, and sometimes it really is about kind of oxygen in the room, right? There's got to be sort of a will to address these issues. And I mean, I feel like every time you turn on the TV these days, I mean, it's just like another, you know, crisis. <laughs> and especially in, in South Carolina with, you know, the execution litigation and, um, you know, the abortion and it's just crazy gun stuff. I mean, it's just sort of insane right now. And I feel like our you know, criminal justice issues sometimes take a back seat to that. And it's unfortunate, but I mean, you know, I think it, it just takes persistence, right? I mean, just to kind of keep showing up, keep mm -hmm. showing up and, you know, social media, as much as I sort of dislike it for a lot of reasons, it's really brought a lot of people together. And I mean, I've seen in South Carolina, here's this really great person. Her name's Erica Fielder and she has Hearts for Inmates is her organization. And, you know, she gets her people and they show up and they advocate for prisoner rights. And, you know, she doesn't have a whole lot of money. I mean, it's not a well you know, funded organization, but I mean, there are people who show up and I don't know, you know, how they found one another once, before, you know, once upon a time. So, you know, it's kind of harnessing that power, um, bringing awareness to individual cases, I think is also really important and being able. And I mean, obviously that's sort of what this, your organization is doing. And I mean, pretty powerful. I mean, I can sort of see all your, your footprint in the social media space and it's going to take sort of additional, I think, efforts on that front um, to start moving the needle. And I mean, it, it, you know, gerrymandering is just such a huge issue, but I mean, it, 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 it's going to take getting people elected who can sort of say the unpopular things. You know, I had this conversation earlier today you know, we've made it's a policy choice, right, that we've decided to treat certain drugs as a criminal issue and not a public health safety issue. And so we have a whole lot of policy decisions that we're making. Um, but if you want to have that conversation, right, I mean, if you want to say, you know, maybe maybe we ought to be looking at this as sort of public health safety instead of a criminal issue, then all of a sudden you are labeled as soft on crime. Um, you know, somebody's going to coddle criminals and then that becomes, you know, the attack ads. And no one has ever lost a political you know, race because they are too tough on crime. Mm -hmm. But the second you start to argue for compassion and, um, you know, some 
something outside of, you know, sort of a pro-incarceral sort of solution, then you are going to be, you know, you're, you're going to be labeled a liberal and somebody who cannot be trusted on criminal justice issues, and then you will lose your election. And we've seen that time and time again. That is a very successful political weapon. Oh, we have a Chris Eagle is asking yeah. me a great question about yeah. EDPA and the possibility <laughs> of legislative initiatives to revise or get rid of it. So I heard before Biden came into office, but after he was elected, that there might be some movement on it. And I haven't heard a single thing since. Um, EDPA, for those who are not <clears throat> aware of it, um, you know, so that is the federal habeas statute. And, you know, once upon a time, if you were a criminal defendant and you were sitting in prison, you could file a federal habeas whenever you wanted to. There were no limitations. And courts could look with, you know, their searching eyes to reverse cases um, that they thought were sort of wrongfully decided. EDPA came out in 1996 and in response to <clears throat> the attack on the federal building in Oklahoma City. So everyone decided that criminals were getting too many shots at freedom and that they were abusing the process. And so Congress passed EPA. Um, and it has, I mean, we talked about Shin V. Ramirez earlier. I mean, it's why we're in the trouble that we're in today. Oops. You there? Oh, that was, yeah, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I was giving you, you know, a full screen. <laughs> oh, no, no, I was like, oh, no, we're here. Wonky about it. But anyway, so I don't know. I mean, but between EDPA and the Prison Litigation Reform Act, I mean, so that's the one that has made it so that attorneys can't get attorney fees when they bring civil rights actions um, for inmates who are in prison. So, I mean, those two laws, they both passed in 1996, and they have really brought us in large measure to where we are today, frankly. Um, it's unfortunate. Attorney Matt, Attorney, you have something. Well, I've been following um, <clears throat> a case, I believe out of South Carolina, where a prominent lawyer, I think last name starts with an M, he is Murda. being retried for murder. Okay, there we are. There we are. And I, in looking at that, like he's a, like a, a former like prosecutor, and daddy was a prosecutor, and granddaddy prosecutor. I mean, so etched into the social fabric, it seems like fascinating case actually um, of, of of South Carolina. And I was just wondering the effect of race and privilege in this man having that conviction reversed and being retried again, you know, and I, I just want to get your, get your, get your take on that, um, of the realities or non-realities, depending on how you feel of, of race and privilege, because I just get the feeling he had a lot of clout and money and power behind him to get that case reversed. 
and I've never practiced in South Carolina, but I just have a hard time believing if instead instead of uh, uh, Murdoch or whatever his name is, if his last name was Jefferson or Washington, I'm not quite sure I'd be seeing a retrial on the merits of, of a double homicide. Correct me if I'm wrong, counsel. Yeah, so he's not, this is actually his first trial. So um, it's not a retrial. He um, was charged, I don't know, maybe about a year ago for murdering his wife and son. Um, and it is the trial of the century for for South Carolina. It's like down in the low country. Um, he's like the third generation Murdaugh. Um, they were all prosecutors down in that area. They made a lot of money um, in rail railway litigation. Um, and I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, I think it, it's definitely a story of privilege. Um, it's also just deeply, deeply sad. So, I mean, I, I, I think I'm one of the few attorneys who has not been sort of glued to the television, frankly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know all the lawyers who are involved and all the rest of it. And it's something else. <laughs> it's something else. All right. Uh, Edward, join us. Edward, hi. Are you muted? Um, yes. Hello. How are everybody doing? We're great. Introduce yourself. And my name is Edward Sanders, and I go by the name of Baraka. And um, to be quite frankly, I am what you call in a returning citizen, though. I kind of uh, accept that um, usage um, with some protests, but it's better than being called a convict or a, or a felon. And because um, no one returned home from prison um, or, or, or remained um, with their constitutional rights intact in this country after having been convicted and sentenced, which is the very idea of the clause in the 13th Amendment. <laughs> okay. Um, in any case, we have three attorneys here, and um, thank you all for taking and joining us this evening. And hello to everybody that's here on the um, Justice for Gerard or turning a moment um, into a movement. Thank you all for taking and um, joining um, J Love here on this show. And um, and I'm um, thankful to take and be here with you guys as well. With you three attorneys um, on, on this, I have a question. And either one of you can take and comment on it, or one of you can follow the other one. Judge Crockett, what was wrong with the model he accepted or that he demonstrated? Here you had a church. You had um, someone out on a street um, that shot and killed the police in the city of Detroit. And um, the police ran up in a, 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 a all-black church, and they didn't get the cooperation they wanted. And they literally arrested everyone in the church. And they took them down to a precinct in, in Detroit, a police precinct. Literally, they hid everybody in a garage and they were intimidating. Uh, uh, they were uh, interrogating um, people. And this judge and some other prosecutors took and set off to go down to the, um, to the garage and literally began to take and hold hapis hearings, which is uh, a proceedings that you you mentioned, which is an extraordinary, um, the extraordinary writ that the U.S. Constitution referenced, you know, 
Um, it, it has a history that, as we noted, that began or exists um, before the founding of this nation. What was wrong with that example of Judge Crockett and those prosecutors that took and um, participated in that um, in comparison to what we see today? We have a, a Michigan Supreme Court justice that's openly saying, that, hey, I'm in favor, <laughs> you know, I'm extremely um, in support of police when every issue, a social issue in this nation that is being dealt with deals with the issue that he took and disqualified itself as being unbiased. So what was wrong with, with Crockett's um, example compared to this example that we now um, setting, this is an example we setting, you know, hell with apology. This is an example we setting. So could you guys elaborate on that as it relates to what you're talking about this evening? Attorney Mack or Attorney Payne well, or <laughs> Yeah, I, I I was just playing playing the role of a ladies first. I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's <laughs> You know, real, real old school, but no, I don't, I don't have a problem speaking first on this, if that's all right. Well, you know, the the problem with uh, with that, uh, uh, Baraka, is that Judge Crockett and crew were on an island. They were on an island, you know, uh, not just a peninsula where there's a connection to mainland, but an island, an island by themselves. And so, you know, islands can be wonderful places to, to live, but islands are subject to uh, hurricanes and, you know, tsunamis and, and uh, shifts in the tectonic plate and can disappear. And that's exactly what happened. That island disappeared, you know? And so the, the problem is, and I'm sure you remember, Edward and, and, and uh, Sister Council, there used to be recorders court in the city of Detroit. There used to be that, okay? That was an autonomy that the city of Detroit had to self-rule and govern and control what, what was going on. And the history, as I'm sure uh, the attorneys uh, and, and other people on here know, is that it was saying Black people was having too much autonomy, too much autonomy. There was too much uh, not guilties being rendered uh, uh, by, by judges. Now in the state of Michigan, if you want to have a bench trial, the prosecutor has to agree to that. <laughs> it used to be where the defendant had the sole power of determining what kind of trial they had. Now the, the prosecutors have got to agree to that. So what I'm saying is, in, in terms of in terms of, of Judge Crockett, that conduct is simply unacceptable. You know, it was simply unacceptable to hold police to that kind of account. And unfortunately, I haven't seen a bunch of, of judges being willing to take up that mantle of that. And I certainly haven't seen prosecutors be willing to take up that mantle. Okay. okay. So, you know, um, uh, a hero, uh, uh, Rockham, but, 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 but the system does not reward heroes. The only thing a system rewards a hero with is, is death. Is death okay? Whether it's physical and or political, it's death. Uh, so, we're gonna let. Um, uh, we okay. talked about this last time, people, and and I was. 
Oh, 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 I'm sorry. I, I tend to get along with I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> Just one second. Sorry. Attorney Attorney Frankly Best has to leave us, but we're going to let her have the, the last, um, let her speak, and then we'll continue with um, the conversation. Go ahead, Attorney Franklin Best. Okay. First of all, I want to thank you for joining us. Really appreciate um, you. We've been looking forward for you coming on, and hopefully you will join us again. And we can really get into, you know, especially when your book comes out. So mm -hmm, we can mm -hmm. really, because we have so many people in Michigan that are really um, suffering with these wrongful convictions. And they're really fighting hard. A few of them are on the feed now. And so we need mm -hmm. some kind of footprint or something to follow to help those who are yeah. dealing with that. I mean, especially what, you know, immediately what you said about Gerard and I was like, yes, that's exactly, you know, what happened. So just give mm -hmm. us some wisdom, some words of hope and, yeah. you know, keep me Absolutely. informed when the book comes out so I can make sure that we get you back on and we talk about it. Yeah, I would love to. And I mean, this has just been such a really great sort of opportunity to meet everyone and just this has just been really great. So thank you again for inviting me. I've just really enjoyed myself. But I do want to leave with, you know, some words of encouragement, because the fact of the matter is, I mean, people win cases every day. All right. I mean, you don't hear about it. You hear a lot about the convictions, because when the prosecutors get their convictions, you know, they pick up the phone, they call their media outlets, and it gets peppered all over the news. Okay, mm -hmm. they're not calling people when cases are getting reversed on uh, on appeal. They're not calling the news when somebody gets a new trial at PCR. Okay, and criminal defense attorneys who are getting these wins are not calling the media either, right? Because we're trying to kind of stay under the radar. We're trying to like get new trials and then we're trying to like work it out for, you know, credit for time served. And so I really believe that if you can just be mindful about how you are developing your case, like after you have been convicted, you've got to get the investigation done. You've got to get the affidavits. You've got to speak to the witnesses. I mean, there's so much that you need to do, but if you can get the record that you need and you present it to the courts, you may be able to win your case. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm so sorry for the loss of your son. I mean, I just, it's, it's heartbreaking. In reading that opinion, you know, there, there were things that could have been done. I mean, there, there, there were things to be done. And I've seen so many cases that I think, you know, people should have won their cases, but because the records weren't there, um, they lost their cases. And, you know, I see your son's opinion. And I mean, there was just so much work to do, but it was work that could have been done. And, you know, so I, I just want to say, you know, I, people should be hopeful. Um, there are ways forward. There are ways to, to create these records and never lose hope. Um, you know, I think this is a movement. <laughs> you know, I think there's sort of a movement afoot um, where people are really getting more in touch with these issues. I think people are finding one another and they're, you know, going to be heard. 
And so hopefully this is sort of the start, you know, of, of maybe sort of a better future for, for everyone. Yes. And, um, you know, I'm just, again, it's just been really wonderful sort of meeting all of you and, um, I'd be more than happy just to kind of reach out and um, stay in contact. Yes, thank you. You know, I just feel like, you know, Gerard was the catalyst to what we're doing, turning this moment into a movement. And so um, as many uh, resources that we can present to help somebody else, that's what we're here to do. So thank you, Attorney Elizabeth Franklin Best. We are, we appreciate you and we look forward to seeing you again. Absolutely. Be more than happy to do it. So y'all take care, okay? All right, you too. Bye-bye. All right. So Attorney Matt, go ahead. Okay, well, well this is part two of my speech. Okay. So, <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, so, you know, you know, see, Brock raises a, a very, a very good point, which is what we were talking about last week. And, you know, for Paraka and, and, and Trisha, uh, future members of our uh, fraternity here, you know, <laughs> you will be inundated with the seduction of acceptance. You know, you work hard, you get through law school through the grace of God. You uh, pass the pass the bar exam, and in there, and like you will be immediately confronted with, okay, now this is how it really works, right here. You know, we know you got ideals and principles, but ain't no need in swimming upstream now. All you're gonna do is get burned out. So kind of fall into place, and if you want to make some change, kind of go gra gradually. Now, don't go too fast. I'm telling y'all. I'm telling y'all. I'm telling y'all what awaits you. Okay, I'm telling you what awaits you. Okay, so you know, uh, but I can't think of two better people to come in and help Sister Council and myself because uh, y'all sometimes I'm getting tired. I, I gotta tell y'all sometimes I feel tired. So, so, so <laughs> you know, Edward Trichet, come on now. So, 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 so and, uh, what, 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 what the judge did, what he realized was there was more to his humanity than a position. You know, there was more to his humanity than have people stop him in the streets or in the courtroom and say, good morning, your honor. See, he realized that, and he is exactly right, exactly right. And so the thing of it is, is that, like I said, you know, heroes are rewarded with death, you know, and anybody that is on this show, and I'm not, I'm not trying to be fatalistic, but everybody that's on here, you have been confronted in your life, in this journey, with people who don't want you here, okay? They don't want you opening your mouth. They don't want Sister Council in Kalamazoo, you know, stepping up fighting. They want her to sit down. They want me to sit down. They want Edward, and they certainly want Jay Love to sit down, you know? <laughs> so, so, you know, and, and Trisha, you know, oh, oh Trisha too, oh, oh, they definitely want her to sit down. <laughs> Oh, good Lord, they want her to sit down. So, I love you, girl. I love you. So, so, you know, Allie, too. So I guess, you know, you know, the thing of it is, you know, Brock, it's, it's going to take people like you to be able to get in and keep a voice going, to be an irritant and, and, and to spotlight the injustice and to do like King did. You know, he put it in the face of white America. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And the only we're going to change, yeah, 
get ourselves together. But, you know, white folks got to have themselves together, too, now. I mean, they've got to realize the inhumanity of a system. And I'm not saying that, that they're saying that they caused it specifically, but they're the beneficiaries of it. By benign action, they continue to perpetrate it. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And by our inability or unwillingness to get involved, I don't want to be on no jury. Oh, you know, I got I got a hair appointment that day. I ain't got time to be doing all that. <laughs> Brother and sister, please, please don't run from the courtroom when we need you the most. You know, so uh, I'm sorry. Attorney Payne. I'm not I'm not that familiar, Barack, with the with the case that you're talking about, but um I do know that um you know my our concerns out here relative to the criminal legal system, I never call it a justice system, uh is that um is is the the fact that the constitution established this system. It established that it was not going to be fair for us because it relegated us to less than a human being. And it's perpetual and 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 that's developed a system. And and systems have a strange thing. You know what they do? They do what they're supposed to do. And sometimes you can alter it or change it, but systems find a way to get back to doing and operating at their original purpose. And that's why we have to continually disrupt and, and prevent that from happening. It, it intended for white people to be privileged. It intended for us not to be treated fairly. And, and so we have to continually disrupt. Now, I can tell you that I, I guess I didn't mention that that the Kalamazoo Defenders, that firm that I'm talking about, it's run by a nonprofit organization. And I'm the president of the board of directors of that nonprofit organization. So you two, if you, after law school, when you're looking to learn, <laughs> when you're looking for a job, Call me. <laughs> Apply. We'll come for you uh, because we need African Americans in this part of the vineyard, in this part right here. Um, uh, because I never said that the our organization is not systemically racist. It's just like any other organization but we persevere um, and we continually fight that culture and that climate that can that continues to have allow people to uh, white people to be privileged and take advantage of that privilege and and even good white people good mean well-meaning white people uh, are still privileged and they still advantage by that racist system. Um, so, but we have to learn to work together. We're in this together. Yeah. And so um, uh, the, we've got to learn to, uh, to help them to grow as we grow and, and keep moving forward. Um, yeah. 
So. Yeah, you're right, Attorney Payne. Um, I want to say that um, some of the things that she brought up, like telling your stories, we had to be, you know, I know even when I was advocating for my son, there were so many people who hadn't even told their stories. And that's important to tell your stories because the more people hear about these things, they just can't hear one story and they can't just hear, you know, one win, you know, you got to tell these stories. You got to keep telling the stories until, um, because that's training people, you know, to, Oh, I, I heard about this or this happened to you too, you know, get people more interested and included into what's going on and not just this is just passing them by because we're all um, connected, you know, and it happens to one person, it happens to all of us. So we have to continue to tell these stories and we have to educate ourselves. You know, we can't just wait. <laughs> Some of us are just waiting for some. You got to, she was talking about, you know, you're going to have to do some of this work yourself. So, um, this was a great segment. I really appreciate everybody um, for coming on um, this week. Um, not this week. I mean, not this following week, but the next week, we're going to have an interested person coming on as well. And um, I, I'll just say that for next week. But I want to thank you guys for coming on. Trisha, hold on. I got something for you to talk about. Go ahead. <laughs> Trisha. Okay. I'm sorry. I was muted. Oh. Um, <laughs> Attorney Franklin Best um, said it best when she said that you we have to take matters into our own hands um, and we have to join together with like-minded individuals. And that is what, exactly what we're doing um, monthly with the Survivor Speak Wrongful Conviction Support Group. Uh, coming together with like-minded individuals to share about the atrocities, but also to build hope. Um, in this support group, it allows the space for individuals to be able to process the emotions behind the wrongful conviction and what, what a family or, or someone that is going through it, or even someone who has come home, what they are suffering with, and how we can build hope together as a collective. So please, we, we ask that you come out, even if you are one that's an advocate um, of wrongful convictions, um, because we all are carrying this heaviness and, and trying to battle this demon of injustice. So please meet us on Saturday, February the 18th at 10 a.m. Um, we, again, meet every third Saturday of the month. So if you stay tuned to our page, or if you hit the QR code there, you can register and you will receive an email with the link for you to come on into the meeting. And again, that is February the 18th at 10 a.m. And then at 1 p.m., at 1 p.m., we're taking matters into our own hands. Uh, we are working together as a collective to promote policy changes, to promote impact within um, legislation. And so last week we had Commissioner Robbie with us, um, who was a state rep who actually wrote legislation about the removal of immunity. And so we are starting there and we are working with like-minded individuals who want to see 
uh, immunity ended. And, and when we look at the, the landscape of what's going on in America right now, um, even after the young man was murdered at the hands of those police officers, more police murdered a W amputee, right? And so we need to ensure that these individuals are held responsible. So we must end qualified immunity. We must end absolute immunity. They must be able to stand charges for their crimes. And instead of us paying the bill when they kill one of us, the bill needs to be rendered unto them. And so please join in with us. That is again, February the 18th at 1 p.m. Um, we will meet. If you want to hit that QR code and register, you will get the email to the Zoom. We are building, we are working, we are coming together because guess what? Nobody's coming to save us. We've got to save ourselves. We have to do it. And we have the power. The power is in our voices and it is in our votes. If these people want these seats, then they will do what they need to do to ensure that we can get the justice that we need. So thank you, Jay, for the space to share. Thank you, Trisha. And also, I just want to tell those that are watching, if you need to tell your story, if you want to come on and talk about what's going on with your loved one or their run for conviction, give send me an email at turning a moment into a moment at gmail.com or get in contact with me or with one of us, and we will, you know, navigate that, help you navigate that and bring your story on here. We're trying to reach as many people as we can. So share these stories, share this platform, uh, invite people to, um, to the platform. We're going to always have an interesting conversation. We're trying to help um, by being a resource to everyone. So um, go ahead, Edward. Before, you, before we leave tonight, if I could um, add something to the show. Okay. Um, I just want to re remind not only um, our listening audience um, in terms of lay persons, but those who um, are professionals. You know, we normally tell everybody else to learn your history, but apparently we haven't. And I don't mean to say that to put anybody on on on, um, on show. You know, and I don't mean it to take in, um, but it's, it's, it's a means of encouragement. Learning our history isn't just for the person with the GED, okay? It ain't just for the person that's just coming out of high school. It's for those that got the PhD even more so, okay? It's for those that had JD even more so, or the MSW even more so. These are, the, like, if you look at some of the things that we are arguing about today, they were part of our history. The Black Panthers took, and not only bail peoples out of jail they also took and stood at a safe distance anytime the police drove up to take and apprehend or stop or question a black person and they followed them if they took them to jail they followed them down to the jail and bailed them out so our bail our bail system isn't new you know um taking and demanding the african americans be placed in juries to take and make judgment of their own peers isn't a new argument. The Black Panthers were arguing that back in the 60s. And here we are today. We have African-American prosecutors. If you're a prosecutor, then we shouldn't need a damn legislator to take and stop you from taking and sitting in an all-damn white jury. Okay? We shouldn't need that. Obviously, we have lost our own history. 
if we had an example down at the Frank Murphy Hall of Justice where a black judge in the 1960s, when he took and literally went down to a police station and himself filed a hapis after he had been informed that black people, a whole black church congregation had been taken into a police station and he held a proceedings. If he could have done that then where the after fact he had to have police that protect his life after that incident. Here we have a whole damn court system of black judges. I can give a damn that they lost the recorder's court. They didn't control it any damn way. The only thing they controlled it was giving other black men and women sentences that looked at like basketball scores. It's like they walked away from the damn NBA um, game and went into the courtroom and decided those same numbers were relevant to the people who were committing offenses in their neighborhood, okay? They need to learn something about their damn history. We didn't lose the Detroit crime lab because of white people. We lost the Detroit crime lab because we wasn't taking and utilizing it in a proper way, okay? So I'm, I'm fed up with this crying about we used to have the recorder's quarter. We used to have this or that. Get your ass up, learn your history, and quit walking backwards. And quit only reciting your history when you're using it only to appease people. Like the Detroit police chief. He can talk about having a knowledge about what uh, uh, um, the history of police policing. But if you ain't taking and, 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 and interjecting yourself to disrupt that practice, you very much part of that practice. We are still arresting African-Americans in the city of Detroit who are witnesses to crime. That's what um, Cock, uh, um, Judge Cock Crockett disrupted. But here we are again. This practice existed before he sat on that bench. And we are still dealing with that. You had a mayor in the city of Detroit that had to take and call the Justice Department and say that, hey, I can't stop my own police force from taking and arresting the citizens here in Detroit without probable cause. And they had to bring the Justice Department in here who brought lawsuits against the city of Detroit. We have forgot our history. Quit telling other African-Americans that they should know their history and that they will act differently. You should know your history and damn, you should take and act different. Act different in your position or profession and quit whiting yourself. That's what you're doing. You're whiting out. When I say peoples are taking and becoming white, I'm not just talking about um, 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 white women who are, who are sometimes in our space arguing to be the victim. And I'm not just talking about Jewish people who are sometimes in our space arguing about uh, um, being discriminated against. And then all of a sudden they become white. They become the oppressor. They no longer look like us. They no longer arguing about the issues we argue, but black folks do it too. Black folks do it too. And they've done it in the recorder's court and they've done it over there in the Detroit's um, crime lab. That's why we don't have a recorder's court. That's why we don't have a damn crime lab because if you was in control, you'd have never lost control of it. It's the same way. We don't, we took and struggled to get the correction facilities in your own neighborhood so you can have a say on how people were being treated from your own community and re-enter them back into your community. You allow a few 
uh, legislative members, when they got on there, they decided they're going to close down all the facilities in your community. You didn't have control. Quit crying. If you were utilizing a power the way it should have been utilized instead of emulating that white supremacy, you would still have control of your community. We don't have control of our community because we are not even seeking control of our community. You want an apology for every damn thing. Go get an apology from Bernstein. Go get a policy from Bernstein and go get a policy from, from, from the, um, the, the, the prosecutor over in what, Macomb County that just celebrated the birthday of a, 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 of a Confederate uh, um, a, a, um, a general. Go get a policy from him because that's all you're going to ask for. An apology is never a solution to the problems that we have, but we seem to always be in line for a damn apology. And thank you. <laughs> Guys, so this, I'm back. Anyone else have anything else to say before we leave? Attorney Matt, no? Well, actually, Attorney yes. Matt. Look, okay. <laughs> see, I, I was trying to get the rest of y'all a break. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> so, no, you know, you know, and and the thing of it is, is this, and I know Sister Council um, I believe with her years of experience also um, can co-sign this. For the rest of my career, as long as the Lord had me here, I want to address this problem right at the source. And the problem is we have got to make ourselves more visible in the criminal justice system. We've mm -hmm. got to make ourselves more visible not only with our presence but with our vote okay and 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 the problem is the problem is is that what we as black people need to understand your presence on that jury can make the difference between justice and injustice mm -hmm. your presence on that jury can make the difference between a person who's either overcharged or wrongfully charged to begin with going to the penitentiary see and 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 the thing of it is we don't have the impediments to voting that king and them had no we don't no we don't no we don't you know yes of course there's voter suppression i, I understand that but i'm saying the the message that i preach all the time and i'm i know i'm preaching to the choir here but maybe there's somebody that's listening that 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 will be able to encourage somebody else is that if you continue to remain silent you don't bother the court watch. If you assume everybody is guilty, you fed into that uh, law and order, CSI, uh, Columbo, uh, cops, what you're going to do, what you're going to do when they come for you. And then what you fail to realize, my black people, is that they're looking and laughing at you. Mm -hmm. These people are looking and laughing at you. Okay. And it doesn't matter. Oh, no, no, they ain't laughing at me, Attorney Mack. I pay my bills. I ain't never had no, no trouble with the police. My kids go to the church every Sunday and this and that. You know, stop looking at yourself as somehow different because you have a little more than the average black person. Stop it. Stop it. Because I guarantee you, and somebody is listening to this and needs to hear this, that young man in Memphis, Tennessee, 
he didn't have a time to show if he was Republican. He didn't have a time to put on his MAGA hat. He didn't have a time to say, I'm with y'all. Rodney King was way out of line. He didn't have time to do none of that. None of that. And none of that mattered, J-Love. It didn't matter. All that mattered is he had focused in on him. He was a target. And that's all there was to it. I would never wish that on Clarence Thomas. I would never wish that on Tim Scott. I would never wish that on all the people that seem to embrace people who overtly tell us to our face, we will destroy you. Overtly tell us that. I don't wish that on them. But sometimes I wonder if that happened to them or their families, they could understand how easy it is to be wrongfully charged and convicted in this country. And like I said, I'm, I'm going to go and meditate myself because my pressure has gone up now even talking about this with that young man. Like I said, I don't watch that video no more. I can't. I can't. You know, and so I, I, I've gotten to the point, as pitiful as it might sound, I limit the amount that I talk about it. I have to. So anyway, but, you know, we're here. God bless y'all. We love you. We're in the struggle together, pulling together. And uh, in the end, we win. God bless y'all. Tony Payne. I love you all, and I appreciate all of you. Uh, keep working. Uh, keep working on on those law degrees. We need you. We need you. Uh, thank you so much for allowing me to be here. Thank you for joining us. You are always welcome to come back anytime you want to. A time to pay. <laughs> So, you guys, so I just want to say have an awesome weekend. We'll be back next uh, Friday for turning a moment into a movement. Much love.